You're listening to Clinical Minds, presented by Medidata, a Dassault Systems Company. I'm Paul Ostreicher. Today, I'm excited to begin our season-long mission to highlight the important work of increasing diversity in clinical trials. As we thought about this season of the podcast, we wanted to ground our understanding in the history of inequity in the practice of medicine and medical experimentation. Harriet Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, The Dark History of Medical Experimentation on Black Americans from Colonial Times to the Present, is a detailed work that I believe provides essential context through which to view today's challenges. To help us with that process, please welcome medical ethicist, author, speaker, and professor Harriet Washington. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Harriet, there's so much to cover. But first, I wonder if you could start by sharing what ignited your passion for investigating this information and sharing these important stories with the world. Well, there are many things that triggered my interest in this, but probably the seminal event took place around 1980. In the early 1980s, um, very few people were talking about healthcare disparities. And certainly racial healthcare disparities were not being discussed in a systemic way. Um, When I was working managing a poison control center at an upstate New York teaching hospital, and in that capacity, um, we often would gratefully accept donations from real medical departments like radiology. They gave us some file cabinets and some extra space I was grateful for. And in emptying out these old file cabinets, I found the bottom was littered with old files from the 1970s, mostly documenting people who needed um, kidney transplants. Kidney transplantation was relatively new in the 1970s. And being the um, curious person I am, I won't say nosy, I read every file. As I read the file, I was deeply troubled to find that the social profiles, um, which were as important as the medical profiles in making the case for giving someone an organ, seemed to vary by race. And um, the social profiles would document things like whether a person had insurance, whether they had family members who could be counted on to support them during the arduous um, you know, trial and journey into getting an organ, whether they had substance abuse problems like alcoholism or drug addiction that might impair their ability to accept the organ and would factor into the decision about whether to give them one. The black patient's files seemed in general thinner than those of the white patients. And that was often because the social profile was had a paucity of data. Um, maybe a few lines, but every one was stamped with the word Negro on it. So an observer, even a casual observer, would immediately know which files were the files of black people. And um, I was struck by one set of files in particular. Two gentlemen seemed very similar, older gentlemen, both very ill, they'd been ill for a long time, needed a transplant to stay alive, desperately needed them. They both had insurance, they both had families, but the black man's profile was very thin and uh, the white person's profile documented his desire to live, his loving family, the absence of any substance abuse problems or alcoholism, any problem like that that could you know, impair his candidacy for an organ. But the black man's profile had one line on it. It was a line, you know, stating that the medical team's plan for him was to help him prepare for his imminent demise. And it was signed by a doctor I knew personally. I knew him as a extremely, even among doctors, he was a, he was a brilliant man and very erudite, uh, devout Christian. And it just 
couldn't reconcile that signature with the person I knew. And I began thinking, okay, was it really racial discrimination? Maybe there's some other factor that was separating these people from organs. And I talked to people who had worked um, in the kidney transplant department, worked in nephrology, and they were very adamant saying, you know, why, why won't you accept the fact? They're black, they're not getting any organs. It's really that simple. Don't look for complexity. And I kept thinking, is it really that simple? And I've been seeing lots and lots of evidence that there was um, really important racial disparities in the way that not only organs, but healthcare in general was being dispersed. It was everywhere. And I wasn't a writer then. I didn't know what I would do with it, but I began collecting evidence, not only at that hospital, but other places. I became a medical social worker later on. And I kept collecting evidence of this disparity that people seem so, you know, determined to avoid. And eventually various things happened. I acquired more training and I realized that um, a lot of the information I had found about medical research was simply not being collected in the history of medicine. And that's when I knew that I had to write a book. I had to fill this gap, so to speak, in the history of medicine. Those disparities, that distrust uh, in the black community, uh, thats it's been all over the news actually, especially with the coverage around the COVID-19 vaccine. And I've read the cause as often attributed to that grisly history of human experimentation, you know, notably the experiments carried out at Tuskegee Institute from the 30s to the 1970s. But you're saying there's a lot more to it, right? The exploitation of black people in the name of science goes back hundreds of years. and You've been filling in that history with your research and your books. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Sure. And you're right. Frequently, when there, we question the uh, dissemination of healthcare goods among blacks and whites, when they're lower among black people, we often invoke black people's uh, purported fear of medical treatment, fear of medical research. But that's a mistake on several levels, especially when we invoke Tuskegee. People invoke Tuskegee because they don't know the history. Tuskegee is all they know. And so they try to put this one study to try to explain all kinds of disparate problems, and it simply is not the case. In fact, um, Thomas Leviste, when he was at Johns Hopkins, did a series of articles pointing out the fallacy of invoking Tuskegee when it's actually four centuries of abuse in the medical arena, which I've documented in medical apartheid, that is actually the generation of um, distrust. That history, the many, many research studies that um, appropriated black people's bodies, um, were conducted without consent, were painful, were um, abusive, completely um, unsupported by any ethical framework. And that is why, you know, many black people don't trust the medical system. Unfortunately, we focus on black people's behavior when we ought to be focusing on a system which has frankly been out of control for 400 years. For 400 years, we've been appropriating and abusing black bodies and black people and then scrutinizing their behavior to explain disparities in health. We ought to be scrutinizing our, you know, the healthcare system behavior. And um, Tuskegee has become an overburdened icon. It's not Tuskegee at all. It's this history it's been passed on through oral histories among African-Americans, but even white experts in the field don't know the history. I've had amazing experiences going to history of medicine conferences, talking to the best experts in the field and finding that they are 
they don't know this history. It's simply not part of the canon, and therefore it doesn't get factored in when you're looking at reasons why people don't trust the system. So was, was that your biggest surprise as you did your research, or were there others? I was very surprised to learn how frequently um, the abuse of African Americans has been a traveling partner with medical, um, what's the most politic way of saying that? Medical deception, you know, falsifying evidence, falsifying data. Um, this is something that has been part and parcel of the abuse of African Americans. Now, in the 19th century, American doctors and scientists told the world that African Americans were less intelligent than were whites. The data did not show that. This is an old mythology. You can even find the Roman uh, physician Gallen saying that African men had oversized genitalia and undersized brains. It's been a myth for a very long time. But now scientists wanted to buttress the myth with data. They found lots of data, copious data, but it's rigged. You know, there were false data, manufactured. And even the 1840 census I point out in medical apartheid was conducted with an eye to demonizing African-Americans. Uh, one product of the census was that free African-Americans were 11 times more likely than enslaved African-Americans to be mentally ill. That wasn't the truth at all. It was made up data, manufactured data, false you know, case histories. But when you form them into documents published by the US government, um, they look pretty you know, convincing. And we see the same thing today. Look at the bell curve in 1994. There was a copious data it's my personal opinion that a lot of the people who read the bell curve and were impressed by it didn't necessarily understand what they were reading. A lot of the data was tangential. Some of it had already been discounted, but it impressed people. Um, people have, um, I think sometimes people who want to manipulate data for their own uses, they take advantage of people's you know, phobia around mathematics and deluge them with numbers and are able to carry the day sometimes in that manner. That happened frequently with African-Americans. And I think if we looked into it systemically with other groups as well, and that did surprise me. Harry, you're, you're talking about falsified data, omitted data, all these ethical breaches, all these breaches of trust. Uh, any thoughts on how we can begin to address this, how they can be repaired? Yes. Instead of focusing on African-American behavior, for example, um, invoking the belief or, if, or maybe the fact that African-Americans are avoiding a certain type of care, maybe we should focus upon the healthcare system instead and you know, talk about, admit the fact that the healthcare system has failed people of color in many of these arenas. And um, therefore, we'll talk about more ethically both parts of the equation rather than putting all the responsibility on one group of people for a healthcare failure. That's so interesting that you raise that because we've all heard so much about COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy in the black popu population and how it's linked to medical distrust. But it's a much more complicated picture, right? Do you feel like health, health disparities, things like access, uh, to care, they play a role here. Yeah, I think so. And let's not forget, too, that sometimes the um, promulgated, you know, narrative about what's happening isn't really describing things correctly. That's a really important point, because we, we know 
that the COVID-19 vaccine developers really did work hard to ensure there was more diversity in those large clinical trials. But looking across the whole clinical trial landscape, people of color seem to be terribly underrepresented. So what's the role of the medical researcher to provide the information and what's the role of the individual to seek it? Well, African-Americans are often underrepresented, but again, I think we have to look past conventional wisdom and maybe look at different types of trials. Um, I believe Dr. Laney Ross looked at children of color, African-American and Hispanics, and found that they were less likely to be involved in therapeutic research, but more likely to be in, uh, involved in stigmatizing research that had ethical issues like, you know, questionable consent um, regimens, things like that. So I think we have to be a little bit more um, detailed in terms of seeing what's actually happening. Um, but you're right. African-Americans do need to be involved in more therapeutic trials. Uh, the question is, of course, um, having a healthcare system trustworthy enough to involve them and maintain the same ethical stance that they maintained for other groups. And that hasn't historically been the case. Harriet, you've written about systemic racism and the patterns of behavior that emerge and feed into medical discrimination and distrust. I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that. Oh, sure. It's a very important question. It's very important patterns that I think we don't always tend to recognize. Um, in the 19th century, a group of very influential scientists had theories about African-Americans, who they were physically and psychologically, how they behaved. And these theories still infect the way we view African-Americans through a medical lens. For example, they said that um, African-Americans did not feel pain as whites did. They said that African-Americans actually belonged to a different species than white people and therefore weren't fully human. They said that African-Americans' bodies were so different that they had diseases that white people didn't get and immunities disease that white people didn't enjoy. And also, they blamed African-Americans for their own illnesses and for their own deaths, either through their um, profoundly um, flawed bodies or through their behaviors that would bring on death and disability. And even though we can look back at that and almost laugh and think how primitive, how crude, the reality is if we have done studies showing that we still do the same thing today. In 2016, University of Virginia published a study showing that 50% of all medical students surveyed thought that African-Americans did not feel pain the way whites do. So we still believe that. A good proportion of practicing doctors think that too. Um, the tendency to look at biological dimorphism, which is like a difference in the bodies between black and white people with plain disease, is um, constant. When COVID-19 rates were found to be higher among African-Americans than whites, the immediate response from a lot of um, venues was, um, what's different about African-Americans' bodies? You know, What's different about their behaviors? Are they not social distancing? Are they smoking? Are they drinking to excess? Um, these were blame the victim responses. They um, focused on biological dimorphism, the putative different bodies, different behaviors. And I pointed out around the time that one of the large factors I could see was environmental racism because a lot of the um, conditions that are risk factors for coronavirus-19 were caused by environmental racism. But that, that got traction eventually, but the first reaction was not to look at the environment, 
or the treatment of black people, but to look at their own behavior and bodies. So that's something that we're still struggling with. It still affects the way we practice medicine and view African-Americans. With your optimistic spirit, you seem to, to feel strongly there is a way forward. We, we shouldn't get up. That persistence really matters. And you have proof, you have evidence that we, there is a trajectory forward, right? I don't think we have an alternative, do we? I mean, from my perspective, we have to. It's not, you know, not optional. As a nation, as a people, we have to um, make sure, ensure that African-Americans are treated justly and receive the bounty of the U.S. healthcare system. We have to. It's important for African-Americans for survival, but it's also important for all Americans because it speaks to what kind of country we want, we want to be. I could not agree more. I think uh, our, our listeners are also uh, with you and behind you. Well, that's what's most important, you know, as long as we're going in the right direction and trying. But I, I do think that there are, as we've, talk, as we've discussed, there are you know, particular things that we can do, that we can actually address and change. Um, I think a lot has to do with the ability of to, again, admit the painful truth about American racism and healthcare, and then to make the equally painful changes that it requires. Right. So I know you've discussed taking personal responsibility, personal accountability to be involved and engaged in, in healthcare. Are, are there any templates, any models, any success stories that you could share with us? Personal responsibility can be a bit, um, I don't know, nuanced. I mean, there are, it's more appropriate in some situations, I think, than others. Um, invoking personal responsibility in a situation where an individual has little control is not really helpful. I've seen it invoked in terms of problems that really have to do with environmental racism, where an individual has very little power to change their exposures. Um, they can try to mitigate them, but can they actually change them? I'm wondering if you feel there are policies that need to be created or amended or repealed to increase awareness and access to clinical trials. Yes, I think I think there are policies that need to be amended dramatically. And one of them has to do with in, uh, institutional review boards, the IRBs, who make decisions about which studies do and don't go forward and what kind of changes must be made. But the composition dictated by the federal government I don't think is appropriate. You only need one person unaffiliated with the healthcare institution, and the rest can all be scientists and doctors working for it. That does not augur well for having people of color represented, having a voice at the table. I think it should be amended to, the law ought to be amended to dictate half of the people on the IRBs should be people drawn from the subject pool including African-Americans, that gives them a chance to have a real voice, to bring up nuances, to bring up even large issues that would affect the subjects and that subject will re respond to that scientists and doctors are not always aware of. I think having subjects involved at the root of the process in IRBs could really help both groups, both the um, subjects who will be in the trial and researchers who want, to who want to put together a trial that people will understand the value of and appreciate. With so much to do, have, have you thought about maybe how we can prioritize what might be the biggest bang for the buck? What kinds of issues should be tackled first? Yes. I have my list. You ask 10 people, they'll all have their lists, right? <laughs> but 
based on the things that I have been studying for a few decades and that I'm deeply concerned about, my list is a number one is informed consent. It's my opinion that informed consent is slowly being removed from the medical landscape without people really realizing this. And it's very important for us not to lose this. Very often you hear ethicists talk about it as if it's some kind of philosophical distraction, but abstraction, but the reality is it's an essential layer of protection for some people like African-Americans. So I think that we now have um, exceptions to informed consent written into the law. And I think they should be written out of the law. We, we don't, we cannot have these exceptions to informed consent. Even if we were doing a better job than we are doing currently, respecting people's rights and um, consent, um, we're just not ready for that. I think that that's the most important thing. The second most important thing is involving more subjects and patients um, at a more basic level of research and treatment. You know, if you want people to um, sign into these things, it's important to have them involved, involved at the root, to have some ownership in it. So even not only medical research, but even policies, you know, things like um, transplantation policies. We need to have more lay people involved in them. So it looks more like a real dialogue with subjects and patients. It's really good. I think it'll be better all around. And I know you cover that issue of informed consent in another one of your books, Carte Blanche. Uh, you, Harry, you, you write about so much misery in your books, uh, systemic racism, the human butchery, the theft of tissues and organs, it's, it's, it's so monstrous and horrifying. Uh, but so I have to ask, what, what keeps you hopeful? Uh, how do we move ourselves closer to that more equitable future? Initially, I was kept hopeful just by, you know, blind faith, you know, thinking that things can't get any better, <laughs> any worse. Let's try to make them better, right? But now I'm, I'm hopeful because of what I've seen happen. It's been 12 years since medical apartheid was written. I remember when it initially came out, the resistance in some areas, there were a lot of people who simply didn't, in my opinion, simply didn't want to know this history. It was that simple. We're very resistant. But I had noticed that um, you know some people were eager to hear it. But now I would say 12 years later, the proportions are reversed. The vast majority of people are ready to hear this, want to know the history, because they want, they want medicine to be better. They want research to be better. They want to see better things from it. They want medicine to live up to its ideals. And um, that's a predominant reaction I get now, as opposed to 12 years ago, when the predominant reaction was skepticism, deep skepticism. So that, that makes me really hopeful, you know? The fact is our country has um, a really ugly history, doesn't it, that we don't like to confront, you know? But being an ostrich and put our heads in this hand, you know, it's not going to get us anywhere better. I, this, this will, confronting the past will, I think. And for so many, and we see it in the whole political landscape, you know, facts don't seem to matter to large portions of, of the population. So I'm, I'm wondering if if and how you've found that common ground, how you've found the language that can break through some of those barriers that we put up to really owning up to the facts, listening, being um, willing to hear another point of view, 
being persuasive. Uh, I, I would love to hear about that magic sauce that you've that you've used to turn the tide. I'm not sure. I mean, I've done my best, but I'm not sure it's my uh, magical use of language <laughs> that has done the trick. I really just think it's the fact that most people, in particular people in, in healthcare, entered healthcare because they want to help people mm-hmm. and um, are willing to, you know, uh, put aside their bruised egos <laughs> and admit that there are errors, admit that there are failures, and admit that we have to change the way we do things. Um, there isn't any substitute for that. You can't legislate how people feel. You can't use data to whip people into like ethical behavior. Um, it's got some, it's come from inside. I think it is coming from inside. And that gives me a lot of hope. Well, that's a nice place to end our discussion. Harriet, we so much appreciate you sharing your passionate thoughts and powerful insights with us. Thank you. Believe me, it's been my pleasure. (laughs) This has been Clinical Minds presented by Medidata. This whole season is devoted to diversity in trials, trust, and access to care for all. Please leave a comment or review wherever you get your podcasts and let us know what you think and what else you'd like to know. Thanks for joining us.